Hi everyone, this is Sarah from Mormon True Crime and History. Let's jump in to this episode. Let's go over Smith's sexual history, okay? By the age of 19 in 1825, he is employed by Hosea Stahl, a treasure digger, and he's supposed to be digging treasure. By 1826, his family, Stahl's family, has accused him in court of defrauding a simple-minded Stowell, and the prosecutor accuses Smith of sleeping and being sexual with Stowell's girls. Joseph wrote that these two young ladies, with whom I had at times kept company, were severely examined touching my character and conduct in general, but particularly to as my behavior toward them, both in public and private. Now they bring the girls in, these two teenagers, and they deny it. Well, of course they denied it. I read an article years ago about BYU students who are raped, 9 out of 10 do not report their rapes. That's today's standards. Back then, if you were rape victim, your reputation was ruined, hence when people were complaining that Joseph ruined their sisters, destroyed their sisters. They lost the right to be around people they used to be friends with. They were shunned by society. They were seen as immoral, as if they had done something wrong. But the point is that his behavior was concerning enough to people that people were talking when he was only 19 years old. And not only were they talking, but they were talking enough that they thought it was a good idea to bring these girls into trial and question them about his private behavior towards them, which says a lot. So let's go to him, his first account, which is not written until 1832, about meeting God. It's interesting because it's very short, and he says different lies, which are changed. He says by 12, he was really upset because he's discovered that religions are corrupt. By 12 to 15, he is studying his scriptures intently, and he's already terrified of his own sin. By 16, God, not two, God and Jesus, but one being, shows up and says, nothing more than Joseph, thy sins are forgiven thee, and disappears. Every time God shows up, it's self-serving interest for Smith. He claims that even after meeting God, fell into transgressions and sinned in many ways, and... He admits many things cannot be written that are occurring at that time. So by 17, he says that God appears yet again. What does he tell him? Nothing more than a self-serving interest that you are forgiven of your sins. Also, here's another self-serving interest, treasure digger, because you're losing your funds. I know a place where there's gold plates, an ancient scripture, and also a breastplate with jewels on it and magical spectacles and all these other things. He says God appeared three times that night and all he says that God told him is something self-serving, forgiven once again. But when he says he goes to get the plates, he admits he's denied because he has once again fallen into temptations and he's not worthy. Okay, what sins? He doesn't think treasure digging, which is illegal, is a sin. His own dad at trial claims that it's righteous and that God has ordered them to do it. Yeah, God's ordering them to do a crime, an illegal thing, and that he is chosen by God to do it. So he doesn't think this crime is a sin. So what is he talking about? So we have here the beginning of the claim that God is ordering Joseph Smith to do something he knows is illegal. And that's what he later claims with polygamy and his affairs, fornication, and all of his other crimes. By 1827, he is lying to the treasure digger, Hosea Stowell, and another, after he has asked Emma Smith's father to marry her. Emma Smith's father was like, no, you're a con man, you're going to go to prison one day, I don't want my daughter anywhere near you. Also, you defrauded my brother out of money for your treasure digging schemes. About that time, he was on a, a contract. So... He schemes and tells simple-minded Stowell that I know of a treasure, some golden plates, but I cannot get them unless Emma Hale is with me. 
God said I have to marry her. Joseph Smith is a coward. He didn't even propose to Emma himself. He just gets other people to groom her. And she later says to her children that I married him because these people were persuasive and then I ran away with him because I didn't have anybody else I was interested in. But also notice that she's told to do it while her father's gone at church and she does it that day. So here is the theme that Joseph starts where he gives women... 24 hours to decide something. And of course, it would have been brought up that your uncle lost money in the treasure digging scheme, but he can get it back if you just come and marry him because the spirits say to do so. At this point, the church was not even talked about. It was all about getting treasure. He's also already learning how to alter so-called messages from spirits or God because the first person who was supposed to go with him to get the gold in the ground, he said it had to be his brother Alvin, but then Alvin died. Let's talk about grooming. Grooming is what a sexual predator does when they want to successfully victimize people. It's not abduction and rape. It is a slow process that really screws people up. I told my own sister in 2012 because I had a sadistic attack where I lost my virginity at six in a church. And I also had slow grooming by my grandfather that although the sadistic attack was seriously terrifying, that it did not screw me up nearly as much as the slow and grooming that our grandfather had done to me. So with grooming, what a abuser does is they first choose a vulnerable victim. Then they begin to give special attention, favors to the victim. They build trust in a relationship. They begin to groom the parents, friends, spouses, others at the same time to create situations to excuse how much time they're spending with their victim. Well, we know that Joseph Smith, while treasure digging for the uncle, we know that he lived and boarded at Isaac Hills. So he already was spending time with Emma. Then they offer special gifts or status and rewards money to get sex and trick their victims into believing that it's consent and it's love and many victims myself included for a while adore their abuser we don't notice because we're groomed that it's not manipulation and abuse and we think that we're special and we're chosen and it's something that we see is not bad first they choose a vulnerable victim then they gain their trust they learn details of their life and find ways to fill voids emotional voids physical voids like Smith later does by adopting girls, right? He's filling the void of the fatherless child. Then he sends husbands and fathers and others on missions and he takes over that adopted or father or husband role to provide. He's also their prophet and employer for many of these girls, so he controls their income or inheritance like with the Lawrence girls. He controls the roof over their head and their safety and security, and he also, as prophet, controls their salvation in this life and the next. Every aspect of their lives is under his control. So then they're gaining trust. They're, like I said, grooming parents, establishing a good reputation so that if anyone talks about it, they won't be believed. Then they isolate physically and emotionally from other people and then they begin to desensitize their victim to what they claim is right which is wrong so when they do that like mine started at four years old reading stories to me and accidentally rubbing his dick up against me when i was a kid and i didn't notice what was going on so that's what they do so smith in the house with all of his victims with power would have accidentally brushed up against her in the hall, accidentally opened the door while they're undressing, accidentally touched somebody inappropriately while helping them out of the carriage, accidentally brought up inappropriate things, offering fatherly advice about personal hygiene or something like this. This is the kind of grooming that goes on because it's desensitizing the victim to talking and, and being touched and breaking down boundaries. So here is a quote by 
a woman named Marina, who was a victim of a cult leader named Fred Newman. He was her leader, her boss, and also a sexual predator who, like Smith, added her as a wife, so-called, to his harem. It's quoted in Terror, Love, and Brainwashing. She says, With my supervisor, everything was confusing, everything. My supervision was confusing. They wanted you to question things. Any sense of right and wrong, normal, was just turned upside down. It was just confusing, and then the relationship was confusing. With my supervisor, because he became so intimate, and I couldn't figure out anymore if he was my friend, if he was my supervisor, I couldn't figure out if this was some sort of love relationship. It was incredibly intimate. I'm including Emma because he already had contact with her. He already would have seen whatever she needed fulfilled. She probably didn't feel like she was very special. Now she's being told by grown men that you of all people have been chosen. Her uncle clearly believed in his psychic abilities because he was pumping in money to a treasure digging scheme. And so hence she is groomed by others because he's too big of a coward to get on his knee and propose to her and she leaves. So he's already learning how to groom people. And when he goes to get the plates, he lies to Stowell and he lies to his other treasure digger. And he steals his wagon and his horse while the Smith family deceives them, according to Lucy Smith's account, and leaves them on a wild goose chase to go find them. Why not just tell the truth? Why not just say, I'm going to get the gold plates, Stowell. I need to borrow your wagon and your horse, and seeing as you have pumped what is equivalent to 250 grand into my schemes, I need to borrow these. I'm going to get the gold plates. Well, because Smith is developing a habit where he makes super dramatic claims or does things that heighten the emotions and get the heart pumping. He takes Emma in the middle of the night in the wagon to go to the woods. He abandons her, comes running home, says... People are trying to kill me. Everybody get weapons, blah, blah, blah. And then it's this heightened emotional thing that he's got the plates, whatever, he hides them. He learns to do this with his victims of sexual abuse as well. An angel with a sword came and it's going to kill me. You have 24 hours to decide if you want to sleep with me so we can restore this God thing. And you'll be chosen and righteous in heaven and get a special place because in heaven there's an elitist hierarchy. So this is where he learns that it's successful to have these dramatic heightened experiences and get people thinking it's a life or death thing in that book she talks about how love and fear are the way that the person gets manipulated and in that last episode i talked about a historical figure that is compared to joseph smith they're almost identical in every single way and he according to the accounts written down in history, he had learned through his treasure-digging schemes to use terror and fear. It doesn't have to be terror of him. It just has to be a fear tactic, and it binds the person to the abuser. Within a year, he's already trying to sleep with Eliza Winters. He's 23 or 22 years old while writing the Book of Mormon. What do we know about Eliza Winters? We know by 1834, Emma's cousin was saying, that he knew Joseph Smith and Harris while they were writing the Book of Mormon, and he heard them both say adultery was no crime. Harris said he did not blame Smith for his, Smith's attempt to seduce Eliza Winters. She's 16 years old. Then there is another account that's later recorded that Eliza and Emma were very good friends. They were on very intimate terms, and very many times did Mrs. Smith tell her young friend about finding the golden plates or the gold Bible. There's a case in 1833, February 7th, where Martin Harris is sued by Eliza Ann, and it's because he's going around and screaming to the world and printing, apparently, speaking and publishing, that she has had a bastard child. Eliza Ann Winters sues him for $1,000, 
May 7th, 1833, Martin's brother writes a letter saying that although we have found many opposers and bitter enemies, the Lord reward them according to their deed. The 24th of last January, Brother Martin was taken a prisoner on false charges of slander, went to prison a few days until we got bail to answer to court the last Monday in April, or we would have been in Ohio before that. And now he says that after getting bail, the trial is to continue in September, but they flee. This also begins the habit of Joseph Smith sleeping with his or trying to sleep with his wife's friends. Let me tell you something about seducing someone's friend's wife. I, years ago, came back one night after hanging out with friends. It was late. It was like 3 a.m. And I look over because a motorcycle pulls up on the road. And I'm standing there in the dark trying to get my key in. So people on the motorcycle don't see me. It's a man and a woman. The woman jumps off. And I realize after she looks around and runs to her garage, that's the primary president. And then I see the man pull his motorcycle next door into his garage. I don't say anything because I don't want to get involved in people's drama. I'm just trying to live my life as a recent ex-Mormon. I don't want to know. So I don't say anything. But months later, all of a sudden, there are two for sale signs popped up on both their lungs. And I go to my mother, because let's be real, who's got better gossip than the Relief Society. So I go to my mother, who's in the Relief Society president, and I ask her what's going on. She tells me that the primary president has been having an affair with her best friend, neighbor's husband, and that she's pregnant and she doesn't know who the baby daddy is. And the friend and neighbor is now divorcing her husband, and the primary president is moving, and her husband's going to keep her. I don't know why, even though she doesn't know who the baby daddy is. That's what happens when you sleep with somebody's husband when you are best friends. So the church just blowing over the fact that he did this repeatedly throughout her life is terrible because the truth is that it's not just a betrayal of a husband. It is also a massive betrayal and blow to any friendship she had. He destroyed all of them, all of them. But malignant narcissists do that. They do that to their spouse. They will isolate them physically and they will isolate them emotionally. This also begins the habit of Joseph Smith of destroying a victim's reputation if he cannot get her to submit or if she talks. Joseph uses other people to destroy their reputations. And that is a common tactic with sexual predators. They're all sweet. It's all love while they groom you. But the moment that you try to talk, they show their psychotic, vengeful side and they literally will destroy your reputation and isolate you from society. Now, it's said later that he never made a convert at Susquehanna. Pennsylvania. And that's one of the reasons they had to flee. Of course he didn't. That's where he's been treasuring since he was 14. He's been deceiving people and he's also been sleeping with their daughters. So nobody's going to believe he's a prophet. He's already got numerous cases coming against him. Martin Harris's wife tried the same thing that the Stiles said, which was that my husband is being defrauded of all his property. Then there was another trial in 1830 about him being a defrauded con man. Meanwhile, Joseph is already developing a habit, which he continues for the rest of his life, where he abandons Emma every time things get rough. He abandoned her in the woods. He abandons her when there's a trial, and he's supposed to show up, but he flees instead to the Whitmers. He always does this because he doesn't care. Lucy Max Smith's book talks a lot about what was happening between them and the Harrises, and it's really interesting because she admits that Lucy Harris was actually first supportive of the scheme and that she was giving them money but one day she went to the house and just said to him joseph we haven't seen any results and i just need you to show me something to know that this is true just something and joseph's response is so sexist it is that he does not talk to women about things specific things are too above women 
and he's just so sexist and Lucy proudly talks about it and she even says that she tells Lucy you should just mind your own business and let your husband be in charge of your money. Yeah that's because the truth is that Martin Harris was like mentally ill. We even have Governor Harding who grew up there saying that he knew him and his whole life he would say he saw Satan and Satan was a donkey and he breathed fire and he saw him on the road. Like Martin Harris is extremely mentally ill. And also, the sexism in the Smith house is far worse than sexism at that time. You've got Aaron Burr in the 1790s trying to pass legislation to get the vote for women in New York. There is a movement already growing to get women rights at work. And so the fact that Joseph throughout his life calls women handmaidens, which is literally a servant, the fact that he talks to women like this, and the fact that he views them as nothing more than baseball cards to be traded sexually and used as a sexual conquest and a notch in his belt, it's really terrible. Joseph's extreme sexism and treating women like property and objects is also revealed in his Book of Mormon. Not only does it in his actions and deeds with Ebba, he abandoned her after the baby was born to form and she was suicidal for a long time. He just disappeared like the day after and Lucy Maximus said she wanted to kill herself. He doesn't care. But we also have the fact that women are mentioned far less in the Book of Mormon and in worse terms than women mentioned in the Old Testament which was written 2,000 years previous. And we have Joseph Smith reflecting his views on rape in the Book of Mormon when he has a story about women who are abducted by men and they are taken elsewhere and they are forced to marry those men and they love their rapists to a point that when the family comes to fight their rapists the women are like no 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 we love them they're our husbands they're good men according to joseph smith's version women should love their rapists rape is acceptable and that's something that shows up in the 1842 the peacemaker as well he says that it's okay to rape as long as you marry your victim now about a year later he is accused a man named william bond accuses him of sleeping with a certain woman while translating the Book of Mormon. I'm counting this as a separate incident for a few reasons. One, when they talk about underage girls, they use the word girls. And two, because of the scriptures that are coming out. By the summer of 1829, Joseph Smith gets a revelation where God commands that you should not covet thy neighbor's wife. Now, it's attributed to Martin Harris, who clearly probably was sleeping with someone else at the same time. That being said, Smith has a habit of projecting his own sins onto others. And a month after he's accused of having been caught by Emma in Kirtland with a woman, he's printing out another DNC revelation about not having affairs, but he's attributing it to another man. We also know that while he's writing the Book of Mormon, so about the year 1828, when he's trying to seduce Eliza Winters, he's putting in his so-called scripture numerous accounts. Why does he have to do this numerous times? If this is godly scripture, the Book of Mormon, doesn't need to be like a repetitive, stupid parrot. And yet he has numerous accounts where he is writing about how monogamy is the only way to build up one's seed and how polygamy and concubines are bad and about how you shouldn't try to seduce people and break your wife's heart. Well, what he says is that Jacob is lecturing the people saying that they live in sin and they're beginning to labor in sin and they sin is an abomination and his soul shrinks with shame. And he's also upset because of the boldness of speech that is occurring before one's wife. And he says kids, but let's get it real. He's talking about Emma. Malignant narcissists always project their own crimes onto others, especially if they're using it in a symbolic form. He says that God is chastising 
them for their crimes because instead of apologizing about sexual sins, you, a.k.a. Smith, is wounding and cruel to his wife. We know he has a history of doing this to Emma. He does this later on. And he's putting daggers to pierce their wives, a.k.a. Emma's soul. And then he also says something interesting because he's projecting it onto Jacob, right? But at the time, Emma Smith's father had allowed them to live on his property if he would give up treasure digging and earn an honest trade. He promised he would, but he backtracked and he went back to his old ways. So here we go. He's saying at this time, when he's doing this, that Jacob is luxuring the people for being obsessed with treasure digging, searching for gold, silver, and metals. And yet he also adds a part about God creating all flesh and all flesh dies and becomes nothing. And that's a theme that shows up in The Peacemaker and to justify the polygamy, that they're really one flesh. Therefore, he can have as many as he wants. Brigham Young, he said in 1872 that Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery received a revelation concerning plural marriage while they were translating the Book of Mormon. That tells us Joseph was already doing that in 1829, using those scriptures to justify his affairs and sexual behavior, something he later does with DNC 132 and all of his teachings about Solomon and David and the prophets of old. We know with the Book of Mormon that Joseph Smith used real events and real history. He just would tweak a few letters and then he would call it ancient history. We also know that he used a dream that his father had that Lucy Mack Smith wrote about in her own book as a story in Lehi and that Lehi is based off of his father. So he clearly is using real things going on in life and just switching it over to a fictitious ancient story so it kind of gives us an insight to what's actually going on it also says that whatever was happening with eliza winters and others that this was a very serious thing and the descendant of heber kimball she already wrote a book secret combinations evidence of early mormon counterfeiting 1800 to 1847 she already linked joseph smith senior to Stephen Burroughs counterfeiting gang. Counterfeiters were notorious for treasure digging and other schemes. They were also notorious for being sexually open and inappropriate. They not only would commit bigamy and polygamy and then defraud these women, which is something Joseph Smith Sr. was later accused of doing, taking a woman he married into Canada, robbing her, and then leaving her. But they also were notorious for just screwing whoever they wanted. Hence, the treasure diggers being in that world, not giving a shit when their daughters are being screwed. And hence, his obsession with just putting his dick wherever he wants. A sexual malignant narcissist they start having sex with people young, which is what I think he's talking about when he's saying that God showed up when I was 17 just to tell me, no worries, Joseph, your sins are forgiven. But now I fell back into transgression because the entire Book of Mormon is filled over and over and over with him talking about carnal lust, about temptation, about not giving in to temptation. I mean, it's so many times. And the thing is, he would have had a lot of pressure to not be doing that because for the first time, he's in a place where he's being watched. Isaac Hell is giving him another chance. He's kind of on a short leash. And so he doesn't get to run around like he did as a young man who's not married and sleep with whoever he wants. Malignant narcissists are known to become worse when they get a fan club, a following. But right now he doesn't have one. He is alone. He's trying to get support. But he's in Pennsylvania on his father-in-law's farm and he is really alone for a while until Emma gets angry and she will not translate anymore, which I assume probably came from the sexual issues. 
she was like, screw you, I'm done. When they do not have a fan club and they are alone, they are extremely charismatic and they will say and do anything to charm people into believing that they are whatever they want them to be. Lignant narcissists only get love from their mothers if they are playing along with the role that she has decided for them. And the Book of Mormon also has a quote where Joseph says he has two parts in Alma where he talks about, I did remember the words which they said unto me that their mothers had taught them. And then another one where he says, Now they had never had fought, yet they did not fear death. And they did not think more upon the liberty of their fathers than they did upon their lives. They had been taught by their mothers that if they did not doubt, God would deliver them. The mothers of malignant narcissists, they swear their child has a divine mission and they really are what creates the malignant narcissist in the first place. Creates this split in the mind. This is where the seeing the world as good and evil comes from. He had promised Isaac Hale he was going to stop the Book of Mormon nonsense. No more pretending to see into plates or hats or whatever. But his mom admits in her book that after a long period of time, they hadn't heard from him. They were about to lose their house. And so they stalked him down and demanded what is going on with the book. And this is when Joseph comes up with a lie and says that the angel took the translating tools away and all this nonsense, but he'll figure it out. So it sounds like he actually was trying at least for a little bit, to get away from that. Probably not for long because he is already at this point an obligant narcissist. But he was trying to at least stick with that. And then once his mother came, it all went back to the schemes. Joseph was even said to do so many treasure digging schemes that he even deceived Mrs. Rockwell, Porter Rockwell's mom, who was also their neighbor. Her daughter talked about that and that she was looking for some time for treasure that he said she'd find, but she didn't find it. Another former neighbor said that Joseph had perfect command over men and that Joseph believed he was a prophet, even when he was young. Sophronia Smith had a friend who she said that Sophronia was the only friend she could play with as a child so she was there a lot and she said that that Joseph was as a boy very pompous and pretentious and very active at parties claiming that he was you know had this divine gift and all these things she said that Hiram and Sophronia were the only ones that were really respected in the neighborhood. Catherine had a bit of a reputation for being a little wild, and the Smith boys were not known for being very good. They were known for being liars and deceivers. Hiram was her teacher, and she said that every few months they'd see a stranger popping by, and that later, Sphronia told her it was Sidney Rigdon. Jacob also says that, for they think to execute themselves in community whoredoms because of the things which were written concerning David and Solomon, his son. Well, we know that Joseph is obsessed with quoting later on that God let Solomon and David have wives and concubines, and he uses that to justify his sins. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And in the Bible, if you actually read it and pay attention, what it says is that because of Solomon's sins, his wives all hated him and started out of spite to love other gods and betray him. His family life sucked and it all was destroyed. He couldn't keep his home together. So it's not meant to be like glorifying it, but Joseph turns it around and even tries to rewrite an inspired version of the Bible where he fixates on making these things glorious, that they're righteous for doing it. And those are his heroes. So we already know by the time he's writing this, 1828 to 1829, that he is claiming when he's getting in trouble for his sexual sins, like, look, Emma, I'm condemning it in my book. But we also know that by the time he gets to Kirtland by 1831, he's already fixated on rewriting the Bible 
to make it righteous. So he's talking about himself when he's talking about these things. And that's pretty scary because that's showing that he's already obsessing in his mind at the age of 22 or 23 about sleeping with a lot of women and about idolizing and probably stating to Emma, see, here's the old scripture. She probably lost her shit, which is the whole part of Jacob about the men were yelling at their wives or treating them poorly. That's probably because Joseph lost his shit. And then that they're trying to use the scriptures of old to justify these things. That's him doing what he later does. And then now look at how your wife's heart has been broken by this. You're a sinner. He says that you need to stop doing these things. Otherwise, your wives will leave you and God doesn't want the wives to abandon their husbands in the New Jerusalem. So that suggests that Whatever happened, Emma was threatening to divorce and leave Joseph Smith. So it kind of gives us an insight to what's actually going on. But at this point, he writes down that keeping wives and concubines are wicked. So this is about the time when he's trying to sleep with her friend. But meanwhile, he's still saying things like, God says you can only have one wife, concubines, he shall have none. And God is saying, I've heard the wailings of some women because of the abominations and wickedness of their husbands, a.k.a. Joseph. And God won't allow the women to leave their husbands on account of their sins. He's already projecting that Emma is so pissed off at him that she wants to leave. But it also shows the malignant narcissist side because women are not free to have options. They are not equal in the relationship with the malignant narcissist. So she is being told in the projection, you cannot leave your husband. Which is heartbreaking because at this point, she's already lost a baby. And she's already been suicidal. And he's writing about how the wife, a.k.a. Emma, is wailing because of his sins. That she's threatening to leave. And that she's heartbroken. That her heart has been cut into pieces. God says these women, a.k.a. Emma, are brokenhearted. And you should be tender to your wives. So nine separate times we've got accounts where the Book of Mormon is saying, Affairs are bad. Polygamy is bad. Concubines are bad. Cleave unto your, your wife. Why does he have to say all these things? Why does he have to put those things all the time? I'm going to argue it's because he's doing these things and he's trying to suck up to Emma by writing things in the scripture by saying, see, this is what God says. Don't be angry with me. I, I will follow the commands of the Lord. But it shows that Joseph also is a manipulative liar. Because he's using these things as his apology without apologizing and his promise not to do it again. By condemning it through the mouth of the Lord. It won't happen again. Don't be angry with me. But then he probably was writing these things too because there was probably talk. Um, there's a lot of accounts about people saying that Sidney Rigdon was claiming he'd go to Pittsburgh at the time. He was actually going up into Palmyra. There's also an account of a Daniel Mack and Rachel Mack, that's his uncle, in Kirtland by 1827 getting arrested for counterfeiting. So there is a connection there. And they were probably already talking about the possibility of going to Ohio. So he is over there lying to her and saying, you see, it's going to be my book. I'll have to follow that. But then he convinces her, most likely with this kind of crap, to go and not divorce him and to go to Ohio where she is physically isolated and alone. So that is going to take whatever support she had from her father, her mother, her friends around her saying, Emma, stay strong. This is not okay. Now she's alone. And then on top of that, he begins to sleep with her friends, destroying her friendships. 
So now she is, for the rest of her life, morally alone, because whenever she gets a strong friendship, guess who goes in and starts screwing that woman? Joseph. So this is why I'm counting Emma as a groomed victim, because he does all the tactics of a predator on his own wife. So we've got by summer 29, the commandment that you shouldn't lust over the neighbor's wife. We've got during the writing that monogamy is declared as the only way to raise up one's seed. The Smiths are obsessed with semen. They are obsessed with semen. His own father, he is obsessed. Senior is obsessed with seed. He talks about it in every single male blessing he gives in Kirtland, which he was paid for because they weren't free back then. Joseph Smith at this point also is friends with John Gold, who's a Baptist minister, and he is already collecting his own little harem. He ends up getting expelled from his own church by 1832 because he has slept with a lot of the women in his church, including the other minister's wife, a Mrs. Alexander, and he's also seduced two teenage girls. So what does he do? He runs down to Joseph, and Joseph's like, hey dude, how's it going? How's stealing people's virginity? And he tells him to stick around, and they end up making him one of the first presidents of the 70, because why not add another seducer into your little club? Gold also was involved in fraudulent schemes with Joseph in Kirtland. His son-in-law admitted, along with other members, that they had drugged a child with opium, and it was Mr. Gold, his toddler, two-year-old. They wanted to raise it from the dead and show it as a miracle, but it ended up dying, and Joseph ended up really terrified and trying to save the baby's life. It didn't work. He also said that while in Kirtland, Joseph had tried to seduce a woman by going up to a house that was south of the temple at night. He got a ladder and climbed up to the second story window and tried to seduce her and he didn't succeed and it caused much talk about the town. Joe claimed he had the right to by revelation. That is such a malignant narcissist statement. I have the right, but it is a statement that comes over and over and over. No matter where he goes, people claim that he claims he has a right to sleep with women. People said that Elder Gold was bad before he joined the Mormons and he just got worse after. He's involved in a lot of other fraudulent schemes, Joseph pretending to walk on water by using planks. And why wouldn't they do schemes like this? He was putting sand into bags and then putting money on top of it for his bank. He has, since the age of 14, been defrauding people out of money, knowing that he never once delivered on a promise and found anything worth value. It's just an extension. Malignant narcissists get better with their schemes as they go. And the more a little fan club they get, the worse they become. There's a lot of accounts of him saying that he would give people property lots in Missouri and then later in Nauvoo. If they loaned him money, they did. He never gave them the lots or the money. There's an account of a man saying he loaned him a lot of money and needed it back. And Joseph got really angry and threatened to attack him violently or have somebody else do it. There's an account of the Justice of Peace who the Mormons didn't want him as Justice of Peace because these systems with these counterfeiting gang setups you only get someone elected who's going to do your bidding. When he got elected, he used to get shot at. He'd been shot at a couple times. There's some others who said that they were not liked by Mormons. They were shot at a couple times. A.R. Gardner, the Justice of Peace, said that a lot of people talked about a woman that was buried alive so that they could raise her from the dead. She was in on the scheme, but she didn't live. 
another person who spoke the brother of the president of the 70s Hazen Aldrich his name was Isaac said his brother admitted that they were all drunk at the Kirtland temple but he said that he after seeing what he saw believes that the Mormons are guilty of every crime they've been accused of John Carroll who was later on trial he turned state evidence in 1838 but at the time he was the architect of the temple in Kirtland and according to Isaac his wife lived out west and Joseph Smith told him there were plenty of women in Kirtland who would accommodate him he declined G.S. Pelton said that he went over and saw Rigdon and he saw that Rigdon had a lot of women around and he said we believe in having more than one woman I said how many wives do you have Mr. Rigdon he replied six I then asked how many Joe Smith had he said seven used behind Joe said I he said he would catch up. I think this is likely true because Fanny Young admitted that 11 girls at one point were expelled from the Nauvoo period at once. We have another account from someone else saying that seven girls were expelled at once in Nauvoo as well. And the Nauvoo expositor mentioned that there are a lot of girls losing their virginity who are targeted for work, servants. And then someone gets jealous and they get thrown off into the world and pretty much expelled from Nauvoo. So it seems like Joseph began a habit of taking in girls, sleeping with them, and then tossing them aside. I don't know if he had seven at once in his house. His own so-called wives, Fanny Young, admitted that 11 got expelled. I'm still going to count it because it's an allegation. And I know that he was preying on other people that we don't know about because we have that in our own family records that while an immigrant from England in our family was living as a servant in his house, he preyed upon her and got her to sleep with Apostle Orson. She is not considered his wife, but then he had her married off to the Allred. So the ones that we know about are the ones that were loyal to the church and had family members close to Joseph. They're called his wives. But Joseph had a habit of targeting people, whether they were Mormon or not. So then he asked about the woman that Joseph was going to resurrect. He said, we buried her one too many times. He asked, where is she now? He pointed to where she's buried. There was much talk in Kirtland about the woman being buried alive. A Mormon to whom I sold sash told me he had two women. I saw them. There was no secret about Mormons having plural wives in Kirtland. My brother's wife was the most beautiful woman. He told me that Joe Smith had a revelation in Nauvoo that his wife with others was to be sealed in 10 days as a spiritual wife for one of the Mormon leaders. His neighbors moved his family pretending that they were going on a visit and he left by night another way to join them and they traveled three days and nights on their way to Michigan. So by January of 1831... He has taken and commanded all of his members to go to Kirtland. And we have an account from a former person who was in Kirtland who said that Elder Edward Tolley was with the first group who went to Kirtland and that he was sleeping in a cabin with two women. As wives. And he was not in trouble for that. They go to Ohio where you can go to jail for six months for fornication, polygamy, bigamy. Members of Rigdon's old community, like Isaac Morley, were already said to be practicing free love, which is an open marriage. And by February 9th, 1831, Smith has already had to have God state once again, just after a month, thou shalt love thy wife with all thy heart, shalt cleave unto her and none else. And he that looketh upon a woman to lust after her shall deny the faith and shall not have the spirit. And if he repents, not he shall be cast out thou shalt not commit adultery and he that hath committed adultery and repenteth not shall be cast out well that's convenient so basically he's saying 
All you got to do is repent and you're going to be forgiven. By May 7th, he has to have another revelation that it is lawful that he should have one wife and there'll be one flesh. Then by August 30th, he has another revelation telling Joseph that lusting after a woman that they will be denied the faith. By October of 31. He's giving DNC 66 to Apostle McLellan, and he is projecting once again, because there's not any evidence I've ever found that McLellan was actually sleeping with anyone else, but he's telling McLellan, don't commit adultery, and you've been troubled by lustful thoughts. So he also says that soon the particulars of glories which are to be received in the last days as it was written by the prophets and apostles of old, will be open to McLellan and others. When he talks about apostles of old, he's obsessed with Solomon and David. By July of 1831, he is already telling elders in Missouri to sleep with indigenous women. We know of a few accounts where this happened. W.W. Phelps wrote about it. Ezra Booth wrote about it and we have another account in a different book someone else talking that he did this and said this so it's right after this that he's teaching this that he gets another revelation by august 30th claiming lust is a sin and it's very similar i may add to the february 9th revelation at the same time about 1831 there's a man who knew the smiths in palmyra his name is Hein, and he's going down and moving to Kirtland, and he ends up buying a quarry where they get the temple stone from. And he says, One day I was at the flats. A meeting was held in which the spiritual wife doctrine was discussed. And there's not a lot of people there. It's like a secretive small meeting in a house. And probably out of spite, Rigdon makes a scene out of it and says, If he's got to accept, he might as well begin. He leads Emma to a bed gets on the bed with her and Joseph freaks out and becomes angry. And Hines says it was in everybody's mouth for miles about Kirtland. He also talks about the fact that people were trying to seduce the counselor, Friedrich Williams' daughters. Many men were claiming, I got a revelation from God and you need to sleep with me. He only had two daughters. Lavina was born September 20th, 1816 and Lucy was born September 27th, 1821. So that makes Lavina between the ages of 15 and 20 and that makes Lucy between the ages of 10 and 15 when people are trying to seduce one of them. This is the same man who became a counselor to Smith by March of 1832. First, Smith had a revelation that it should be one Jesse Grouse, who was sent on a mission with Smith to Zion in April 32. But he returns and he's sent off with Zebedee Coltrane by August 32nd. Coltrane returns to Kirtland, claiming I separated from him because I got bad pain in my head. And Gauss is never seen again. Nobody ever sees him. Nobody ever hears about him, and the church says, we don't know what happened to him. So then, Smith crosses off the godly ordained message and removes Jesse's name and puts Friedrich G. Williams. What does he do? He sends Williams away on a mission right away. He ends up moving his family into Williams' house. He then convinces Williams' wife, I've got a revelation, you have to give me your property. And he says, when Williams comes back and is angry, I'll pay you for it, but then he never does. Williams is excommunicated, but later, Williams follows them to Quincy, Illinois, and apparently, according to church records, Smith saw him in 1842, tells Williams, you're going to die. 
And apparently William's response is, I am already a dead man. And that was supposed to be in the summer of 42. And he's dead by October 25th of 42. His wife instantly goes to Nauvoo and shacks up in Smith's house. I think Mrs. Williams may be someone he slept with or tried to sleep with because we know that he has a habit of sleeping with women and getting them to give them their property. He did that with the Lawrence girls. He drained their inheritance. There's another account of him taking money every time he's sleeping with a woman when her husband's gone in Nauvoo. And Williams was baptized in the fall of 1830, and he is gone a few weeks after being baptized. He's supposed to go on a three-week mission, yet he's gone for 10 months. Joseph Smith moved into his home without even knowing the man. So at the time that Joseph is getting these revelations over and over and over in 1831, saying, don't take more wives, don't sleep with these women, he's living in their home. We also know that Joseph Smith is said to have a habit of poisoning his scribes in Nauvoo. He begins that habit, according to his counselor, who later talked about that. That was William Law, who said that people claimed that six or seven of his scribes and editors had been poisoned. And he gave the revelation, ordering him to consecrate his property to Joseph Smith, and at the same time made Williams his scribe. He was excommunicated in 1839, but then Joseph allows him back in by 1842, and the man is dead by the fall of 1842. Hines says, at the time I was in Kirtland, many persons were being disgusted with Mormonism, and many left and exposed the secrets. That's interesting because the biographer of Porter Rockwell, who wrote Holy Murder, said that Rockwell began his career, according to his biographer, precisely because too many people were leaving the church and talking about what was happening. And so he started his career murdering people by killing people who were apostatizing and dissenting and deserting the church. So now let's go to the brother of Bishop N.K. Whitney. He was in Kirtland, and he later became a reverend. He, as an old man, admitted he was terrified to talk when someone tried to interview him. He thought he'd still get murdered, even though it was decades later if he signed his name to any statement. But he did talk eventually. And he said that first when they got there, they were really fanatical. They would act like shakers. Shakers would like scream and fall on the floor and talk in gibberish and say they were speaking in tongues and that they would claim they were speaking indigenous languages and that the church was really informal it was more like debates and some preaching and people either were cursing people or promising heavenly blessings he talks about one warner Dottie being 25 years old he gets a fever his mother calls a doctor the doctor says it's too late to save you Rigdon and Smith are sent for, they bless and claim that he would recover because he had received a revelation that he was to preach to foreign nations, but Dottie died. And then Reverend Elijah Ward presides over the funeral, and apparently Joseph and Rigdon are just like withering underneath his scriptures, which are kind of mocking people who are false prophets and things like that. The Dotties were a counterfeiting family throughout the colonial period, and Joseph Smith's paternal grandmother was a Dottie and Silas Dottie was one of the most notorious counterfeiting gang members. He said in his book, we continued writing during the night and toward morning found another friend, a member of the Mormon church. This man entertained us with the history of the church up at Kirtland. He said Joe Smith was the vilest wretch in the world, that the church was kept in existence by thieving and polygamy and that they were all either knaves or fools. His experience with the Mormons as related to us by him 
was not such as to create any desire whatever to become one of them, though we were interested in all he had to say as regarded their church and their people. Silas Dottie committed all sorts of crimes. He even committed murder. So for him to say that after hearing that story that they were appalled, it says a lot. Hiram's wife had a sister who married one Mr. Bell, and he claimed that Hiram's wife ended up dying because of a lack of a doctor. Hiram refused to get her a doctor when she was in confinement. And she ended up dying from it. Let's go back to Reverend Whitney. The Reverend said that his brother in Salt Lake City had infuriated Brigham Young. And then that he was poisoned after conference. What happened was, according to a non-Mormon bishop in Salt Lake City, the second wife on her deathbed had confessed that the first wife had poisoned his whiskey flask the first day at conference. It didn't kill him. He just got sick. And so she did it again the second day. He left conference, was drinking his whiskey flask, and fell on the ground outside and died a few hours later. He also mentions Elder Gold, expelled for seducing seven women in his church. So we know that, that he tried to kiss Mrs. Alexander R. Jackson and that he was claiming it was a spiritual kiss, not a carnal kiss. We also have the squire J.C. Dowin, who was corrupt. He wasn't Mormon, but he was buddies with the hierarchy in Kirtland. And Charles Grover said that Dowin, he admitted to me that the Mormons were very friendly to him. He was aware some of the Mormons in Kirtland practiced polygamy in violation of the law, but he refused to issue warrants against them as he did not wish any difficulty. He also claimed it was claimed all things were common in Kirtland, even to free love. The reason I'm adding these is because you're going to see, as I keep talking, how many times Smith has to put statements out denying that these things are happening. The only reason you have to address something once is if enough people are talking, it's a scandal. But if you have to address it like 12 times or more, it's because it's a serious scandal and people know about it. September 12, 1878, Orson Pratt said that Lyman Johnson told him that Joseph told Lyman in 1831 that plural marriage was a correct principle, that God had revealed it to him, but that the time had not come to preach or teach it in the church, but that the time would come. Joseph Smith admitted to Benjamin Johnson that when he first got the revelation in 1831, he wanted to ask his mother about three unwed girls in her house. He specifically said unwed. Now, Delcinda, Lyman Sherman, her husband, Lyman conveniently died in 1839, and then Joseph moved on and claimed her. And Smith probably was sleeping with another Sherman because there is a woman who's rumored to have slept with him, Mrs. Sherman. Smith was keeping Louisa Beeman in her house. And in between trying to groom Sarah Pratt, he left and then had sex with Louisa Beeman in the Sherman house for about two hours. He was visiting her, so-called. And then he came back and tried to groom Sarah Pratt again. He has a habit of doing that, putting girls and women in the houses of people he's already slept with. Smith later officially added Dilcinda to the harem in Nauvoo. So we can't count her. It's one of the three he wanted to ask about because she was already married by 1829. We can, however, count Julia Ann who didn't get married until November 1833, and Almira, who he later sleeps with, she was unwed as well, and that leaves Susan Ellen, who was born in 1814. She died in 1836, but because he specifically said that Joseph was thinking about asking 
we know that he was thinking about sleeping with them. So I'm adding them to the list. Julia Ann was 29. Almira was 19. And Susan would have been 17. Most of his victims were known to him by the time they were little girls. And quite a few of them said that he was grooming them when they were little. In February of 82, Joseph F. Smith, the sixth prophet, he said some of the women had entered into plural marriage with Prophet Joseph Smith as early as 1831, and some of them were given in marriage to him as early as that date, but it wasn't at the time appropriate to tell people. And when the Lord showed these women to Joseph, some of them were not even acquainted with the church, much less him. He was at the funeral of Elizabeth and Whitney. Joseph Fielding Smith at her funeral suggested and implied that she was one of his wives and was by 1831 seeing as he targets mothers and daughters and she gave her daughter to him later she's counted joseph b noble june 11 1883 centerville fake conference he said that smith told him that polygamy was revealed to him while he was engaged on the work of the translation of the scriptures but that he couldn't tell people helen marr kimball the 14 year old who's going to get raped by him 1884 she said the Lord revealed plural marriage to his prophet Joseph Smith as early as the year 1831. Joseph F. Smith again had said that it was revealed in 1831, but being forbidden to make it public, he confined the facts to only a few of his intimate associates. So at this point, Joseph is keeping his little sex club secret, but by the time he gets to Nauvoo, he's going to add more members to it. But right now, it's top secret. In April of 1831, Julia Murdoch had twins and then she died because she was denied a doctor. And John Murdoch traveled 18 miles to go and give the twins to the Smiths. Emma agreed to take them, but only on the promise that nobody would know that they were his. So she lost her twins because Joseph was a dick and he refused to get her a doctor. Now, Joseph then says that when he was tarred and feathered, the baby died, the boy. But this is a lie. They're in the Johnsons' homes. Emma is not alone. His own writing says that she was babying him and well enough to get up and check on him in the night and that she was awake during it and screamed murder when they dragged him out. This was the Johnsons who attacked him. The Johnson women are in the home. This is not some random mob that has to rush in and can't close the door. The baby died because Joseph once again cannot heal anyone. So it sounds a lot better to cry and call it persecution. But it died because of his neglect, once again. They had measles for some time. That's why the baby died. But Emma took in the child and didn't tell her she wasn't a smith. But when she was five years old, somebody else did. And they told her that you're not really a smith. And that your birth mother was actually Joseph's consort. And that Emma only took you in to prevent a scandal. So Julia grew up really broken. Children in malignant narcissistic homes do end up broken. She ran away at 17, got married. Her husband died. She went back. Then her family finally started connecting with her in 1859. She admitted she was bitter even as a child. Why was it that I could not have been raised with my own blood and kin and not with strangers? She said that she always dreaded being taken from those I was raised with and that she should have been Mr. Murdoch's. And she also wondered if her mother looking down would it be accepting of what happened malignant narcissist joseph took the babies in and then by august sends john murdoch on a mission with his brother to go baptize 
bunch of criminals, including my ancestors in Missouri. But Joseph then broke up the family even more. So they already took this girl, making them promise no one will ever know. The children that are left, there's a lot of them, and they're all under the age of five. They just lost their mother, and Joseph decides to send them away so that he can go do something free for the church. Then they get sent to Missouri, and they're split up from each other. This is what malignant narcissists do. They destroy families. They create trauma. She ends up leaving the church, and she ends up being a Catholic. Her family in Utah, at this point, her dad's a polygamist, and he wants her to come, but she won't because she's a smart girl. It might be true because John Murdoch's father was in Woodstock, Vermont by the 1790s, and that's where Oliver Cowdery's dad and Joseph Smith's dad were doing the wood scrape counterfeiting religious scheme together. So he would have been there. And his son, John Jr., was a traveling preacher, and he had joined a bunch of religions like other early Mormons, and so he very well probably knew the Smiths because he had family in Pennsylvania and New York. At the same time when others said he was getting the revelation, he had moved into the Johnsons' home by September of 31. By March of 1832, he had been living with the Johnsons, and he was obsessing about translating the scriptures about Solomon and David mostly, and writing things, you know, his inspired Bible, which, and he's dragged out of bed by a mob said to be led by Eli Johnson, the uncle of Marinda Nancy Johnson, who's 16. There's a doctor there, and numerous men, including the doctor, want to castrate him. They end up not castrating him, they just tar and feather him. Castration was a punishment that rapists would get. It was used for rape and incest, but usually, because men like their balls, nobody really did that. They would just kill the person before they'd cut their balls off. So the fact that by March 32, people want to castrate him so that he will not be sexually harming or seducing women or girls says a lot. It also says a lot that he later tells Marinda, after her husband's sent away, you need to obey me in a revelation. Obey my servant Joseph and everything he says. Well, right after that revelation's given, she starts going places with Apostle Richards, who has abandoned his wife, who's ill on the East Coast, and his son. And he is living in a state of adultery with her openly. He is taking her to the Christmas party of Heber Kimball. He is sleeping with her in the printer shop. He was able to do this because Joseph Smith got mad at Ebenezer Robinson, who was there with his family because Robinson's wife wouldn't stop talking about the sexual affairs and the schemes. So he expels them, and Richards moves in and shacks up with Johnson, Hyde, because she's married Apostle Hyde by this point. So what happens after that? Well, first off, she's not claimed by the church for Richards as a wife, so she's just a straight-up whore for the church. As Joseph Smith gets worse with his malignant narcissism, he replaces people with worse people. He replaced the Whitmers and Oliver Cowdery with, he had Dr. Williams with him. He replaced him. He was excommunicated. He replaces him with Dr. Adverd. And in 1838, people are testifying in court that Joseph Smith and Adverd started the Danites and that they even admitted that they had killed someone, that the Danites had killed someone trying to leave the fort before their insurrection. So he tosses him aside because Adverd turned state's evidence 
and he replaces him with Dr. Bennett, who's a seducer as well. And then he threw Bennett aside when even Bennett's sexual schemes could not compare with Joseph's. And he told everyone that Joseph was grooming people, more victims in his little sex club. And who does he replace him with? Brigham Young's cousin, Dr. Willard Richards. In 1838, Willard Richards was in England and he ended up being put on trial because he had convinced a Mormon woman to get rid of the doctor and then he told her to do the opposite, something very detrimental to her health, and that daughter who had a child and was sick died. So a few weeks after that, he marries Janetta Richards. She was 21 and he was 34. And they got married September 24, 38. They had three kids. The first had died as a baby. While he was shacking up with Johnson Hyde, she was sick on the East Coast. And she would be dead by the time she was 27 years old. In 1843, he becomes a full pedophile, an incestuous pedophile, by adding a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old, both who are sisters, Nancy and Sarah Longstroth. They're immigrants. Nancy was only married for so-called eternity. He's 45 and he gets both on the same day, but they both have children. So eternity only, yet they have children. Sarah would be dead by 31. Susanna Bayless is next. She ends up becoming his concubine June 12th of 1843, a few months after the girls. Her husband had died in September 4. She married someone after this name Lee, but then she was his concubine again by 1847. Then we have Amelia Elizabeth Pearson. It says eternity only, but they had a dead baby, but she died February 25th, 51. So she'd be dead by 27 years old. We have Alice Longstroth, the sister, because why not add another to the harem? She was married to a Mormon named Moses Whittaker, but Richards wants to screw her, so they don't even do an actual ceremony. They just swear to each other that we're married. And that was the day after he got concubine Amelia. She's 21, he's 45, he's stealing a man's wife, he doesn't care. Then he preys upon Mary Thompson, an English immigrant. She's 19, he's 41, and that happened January 27th, 1846. Then another English immigrant, Jane Hall, she's 19, he's 42. He gets her a few days later. She's dead by 23 years old. Then he gets Anne Reed a few days after her. It says eternity only, yet he had two kids with her and she had abandoned her husband and during this time was having children with him because she had another man's children named Hicks between 45 and 63. And at the same time, she's giving birth in 51 and 52 to the apostles' children. Then we have Rhoda Harriet. She's married for eternity, but they have a child. She's 21, he's 47. So out of the 10, four had died young between 23 and 31 years old, seven are immigrants, three are sisters, four are teenagers, three ended up passed off to his nephew, that's incest according to the law, he got two sisters the same day, he got one woman and two girls, four months in 1843, in January 22nd, 46, he gets another the very next day, three days later he adds another to the, to the harem, and four days after that he had another, and then one week after that he had another, so he had five added to his harem in 15 days. Now that we got that sick shit out of the way, let's go back to the castration attempt and Johnson. She's also a Maxwell for the church. We know when Joseph was trying to seduce the teenager Nancy Rigdon, and he kept failing, that he sent Nancy, Marinda, to groom her numerous times, and it failed. Joseph starts sleeping with her after Apostle Richards is done sleeping with her, and then he calls her a wife. But I'm adding her to the Kirtland period because the accusations against her started when she was a teenager while he was living in her home. 
They're also infuriated with Smith because he is giving a revelation saying that you have to give me your property. God's commanding that you deed me your property. Also, I still have the right to excommunicate you, and if I do, you can't take your property back because it's mine. And if you try and leave, you can't take your property back because it's mine. So he's getting them to give over their life savings and everything they've built in their life to him. So the Johnson uncle was there, but another account says that some of the sons of the Johnson were in the mob too. Now later, the church spins this and says anti-Mormons did it, blah, blah, blah. No, please. Even as a seven-year-old, I asked my teacher when she was like, and Joseph was so brave, he stood at the church and he looked down at them and he stared his anti-Mormon abusers in the face. And I was like, why would they be there? Oh, because Satan inspired them to harass him. Okay, nobody who isn't Mormon is going to sit through your boring ass sacrament meeting. No one. You're staring at the faces of your own Mormon members who are pissed off at you because you're disgusting and you're scheming. And they're angry, so they did that to you. That's what happened. One would think that after the almost castrated moment that Smith would have wised up, but he doesn't. Now, it's interesting because the Johnson's sons were said to be a part of this mob. And... In the history of the church, here's another narcissistic dog whistle. Father Johnson's son, Olmsted Johnson, about this time came home on a visit during which I told him if he did not obey the gospel, a.k.a. Smith, the spirit he was of would lead him to destruction. And when he went away, he would never return or see his father again. So he says he doesn't obey and he suddenly takes sick and dies. This is this is right after they've taken the twins. So it sounds like he was a part of that group and something happened. And by October of 31, he's claiming he has the keys to the entire kingdom, which comes up in D&C 132. He has the power. D&C 132. Well, let's start. Let's just read the beginning. Thus saith the Lord, that inasmuch you have required to know and understand that I justified my servants, blah, 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 David and Solomon, about the principle and doctrine of having many wives and concubines. There you go. Prepare thy heart and receive and obey these, because it's a law. Then he says that all marriages not made under this law are void. They're not real. And that I have appointed on the earth to hold this power, Joseph Smith, in the last days. And there is never one on the earth at a time of whom this power and the keys are conferred. So he is not only making other people's legal marriages void, but he now has complete power over who can marry who. He is now the person who gets to decide. You have to have his permission. And nobody else on the earth has this power. By the time his son is being born, November 1832, Emma catches him one night after he's had sex with their servant, one Miss Hill. And Smith claims that he's innocent, blah, blah, blah. But then a month later in D&C 6610 comes the revelation not to commit adultery, and that's given to another. But it's likely because he himself has done it. Now we have an interesting account in the history of the church, and that is that one Isaac Hill showed up and had been excommunicated. We don't have a date, though, which is interesting because usually they put the date. We don't know when he was excommunicated, but he shows up to church and he says that he is sorry and he wants to be rebaptized. Usually, the Mormons would accept that. He's been accused of lying, which probably means that he has been accusing Smith of teaching improper things because that's what Smith charges everybody who's talking about his sins with doing. He's also accused with attempting to seduce a female. What's interesting about that is Joseph Smith has a history of swapping vagina. 
you help me get this girl and you get this one. And we know with Fanny Alger that this is definitely happening by 1833, which I'll talk about in a second. But Smith is awfully quiet, according to his own account. He says nothing while his uncle John Smith and Sidney Rignan are saying, if you want to come back to the church, you need to not only make a public apology and confess your sins in full, but you also need a printed confession in full. So Smith instantly goes to them after church and tells them, no, he doesn't want that done. Why not? Why doesn't he want an account? He demands accounts from others. Why is he saying he wants this passed over? Then he goes home because he admits that during this period when Isaac Hill is saying he wants to be back in the church, Emma got up and fled from Sacramento, which he admits that was unusual. He admits he yells at her. He speaks to her, which she bursts into tears when he does. So either Joseph is admitting he's once again an asshole, which the Book of Mormon and his writings confess that he's constantly being mean to her about things. He projects it, obviously, onto Jacob, an ancient prophet, but whatever. Or she's crying and bursting into tears and after fleeing the church because she's being triggered by something that's upsetting her. And it's very possible that Hill was someone who knew the Mormons and maybe Miss Hill was somebody related to him. And she doesn't want to be reminded of these things. Joseph claims lies even against Oliver Cowdery when he's talking about the Fanny Alger affair. It's something he does. Now let's attack the Mormon lie about girls being married young then. That's complete and utter nonsense. And to prove that, I want to go to an account which was printed in the U.S. papers in 1890. There was a question about how old girls should be when they get married. Research from universities proven that the average age of marriage for a woman, it was not in the teens until World War I and the Spanish flu. Then it became 19 and a half. Before this, it's 22 to 25 years old and even older for people who come from Great Britain. But we've got these articles from the top doctors in the country, and it's from an article from the Fort Worth Gazette, June 5th, 1890. Our girls, when the little darlings should begin to think of marrying. So a doctor says, My opposition to girls contracting marriage at an early age is most plainly expressed. I do not know how I can possibly give it any stronger utterance. Girls should be thoroughly and complete women, physically, mentally, and morally, before they become wives. Very few are perfectly developed in these respects until between 20 and 25 years of age. Too early marriage is to be reprehended for many reasons, that it would require too much time to point them out. We also know that girls on average back then did not start their period until they were 16 to 17 and a half years old, and that it took a few years, like it does now, for the girl to be fully matured. So we've got another, um, a different doctor. Early marriages are, in my opinion, to be deplored, and every intelligent physician knows perfectly well, very young girls are scantily developed and therefore can illy bear the duties and pangs of maternity, which are necessarily attended in such cases with heavy mortality. All the dangers and risks to which mothers unavoidably are subjected are very greatly increased. Girls married at an early age too often become haggard old women before they are 30. He says they should never marry before 18, and in many cases 20 would be much better. From 20 to 23 or even 25 are the best years. This is so because up to 18 or 20 years of age, a girl is still growing and she needs first to be thoroughly developed before undertaking the duties and responsibilities of motherhood. She cannot marry before this development is completed without detriment to her own health and that of her offspring. Okay, then there's another. He says the same thing. You cannot have girls marry before 18. He says the same thing, that they're not fully matured. Therefore, I should select an age between 18 and 22 years old as the one at which it would be wisest and best for girls to marry. 
I object to early marriages because the character cannot possibly have been formed and because the body cannot have attained its full and complete development. Hence, it must therefore follow as an unnatural and unavoidable sequence that such marriages are usually very unhappy ones and are almost invariably unhealthy ones for the wife's health is pretty certain to give away very early. Girls marrying earlier from 18 to 20 have little chance of someday being what every married woman should live to be, fair, fat, and 40. And then another says the same thing, that marriages prior to 18 cannot fail to be very injurious to any girl because the body is not properly developed. It is still growing and therefore it needs all the nourishment it can possibly obtain for its own growth and nutrition. Of course, the earlier the marriage, the more forcibly do these observations apply and marriage at 15 or 16 can hardly fail to be exceedingly disastrous in its results. In view of these facts, it seems to me to be the duty of every physician to protest in the strongest manner possible against the practice of girls contracting marriage prior to the age of 18 years old. And others say the same thing. So we already have Smith preying upon either prepubescent or barely going through puberty girl, Eliza Winters, the Stowell's girls, who are teenagers. And then we've got Miss Hill. We don't know her age, but we do know Marinda Johnson-Hyde. She was only 16, again, prepubescent. And now we're going to get to others. Joseph Smith took in a woman named Clarissa Reed. And the account Clarissa Reed is really scary because Clarissa Reed was best buddies with Emma. She's living in their house. She's working as their servant. And Joseph was sleeping with Clarissa. So we know that she believed, because she was being taught by Smith, that she would be one of his first polygamous wives. And then the son later admits she was devastated when she learned it's not her choice. And she even believed it was a good thing because she was friends with Emma. So then Joseph Smith suggests that she should marry Levi Hancock. So they said that Brother Joseph tells Levi Hancock, I want to make a bargain with you. If you will get Fanny Alger for me, for wife, you may have Clarissa Reed. Pay attention to that because this is a reoccurring theme with Joseph. It doesn't matter if Clarissa is in love with Levi Hancock. He already sees Clarissa as his property. One thing I can tell you about my own rapist, they view their groomed victims as theirs. And unless they are passing them off willingly, they do not like when people touch their property. So Smith is already starting a habit where he is looking at women as his to trade. And so he's bargaining for a underage or barely pubescent girl in exchange for another woman he's already slept with. He says, I love Fanny. Yeah, my rapist said that too. All sexual offenders who groom versus abduct and violently attack love their victims. So Levi goes to her dad. Here's another thing about Fanny Alger. They call her an orphan, but she was not an orphan. The parents lived like 10 miles away from Kirtland and Joseph had gone to them and wanted to adopt their daughter. Hence the beginning of the isolation grooming period. And the period of the pseudo-father who is viewing his victims as a narcissistic supply and a narcissistic extension of himself. And so he is already so obsessed with himself that the only thing that will give him pleasure, the most pleasure, is to have sex with himself, but he can't do that. He starts to see the extensions by adopting them, calling them aunt or daughter as a narcissistic extension of himself. And it's said that he and others claim that she's their daughter, that they've adopted her. This is another thing about abusers. They like to put themselves in even higher positions of authority over their victim. 
One thing we know from research is the closer you are to your abuser, the more access they have to you, and also the bigger position of power over you, the more screwed up you are long term from the abuse. So, groomers get a lot of sexual pleasure out of grooming. Mine took four years to go from molestation to rape. That being said, I lived three hours away, but he was my grandfather. However, when you take a victim and you put them in their house, in the house with the abuser, they have free access to groom, and so the grooming goes much faster. So now he is removing this girl from her home. He's not just her prophet, he's also her employer, and he is also now her father, her adopted father. So the family's so brainwashed that apparently the parents are like, well, go ask Fanny. So then Levi goes to Fanny, grooms her, and says, Fanny, the prophet loves you and wishes you for a wife. And Joseph, being the bitch boy, once again, is not even grooming his victims on his own. He's getting others to do it for him. So he says that as soon as she agrees, he takes her straight to Joseph and says, it's been done. And then in return, he gets his own vagina, a wife, and he marries her March 29th, 1833. So Fanny is 16 years old when she's being groomed. Unless they had a long engagement, then she may have been younger. But we know that this is going on. Then, because the agreement wasn't you try and get Fanny, it was you give me Fanny, you get her to sleep with me, and then I will let you have Clarissa. That same year, we have an account that says the servant girl of Joe Smith stated that the prophet had made improper proposal to her, which created quite a talk amongst the people. Joseph went to Martin Harris and he tells him something about the girl talk. Concerning the girl talk, Harris, supposing that Joe was innocent, told him to take no notice of the girl that she was full of the devil and wanted to destroy the prophet of God. But Joe admitted that there was more truth than poetry in what the girl said. So, first off, some people say this is about Fanny Alger. I count this as a separate incident. This is not Fanny Alger, and we know that because Fanny Alger is already sexual by 33, but she is not caught and does not confess until 1836. This is not Fanny Alger. This is another account. And you have to pay attention to what was said, that Joseph is saying that people are talking because a girl is talking. A servant in his home is saying, he's trying to seduce me. Not that he had succeeded, but he's trying to. And then also notice Harris's response which is once he finds out it's true he says he wants no part of it and he says that smith could get out of the trouble the best way he knew how which is basically saying you already know how to get out of this you've done this before and i don't want any part of it the only way that this could be fanny alger is if all of the mormon authors and historians are liars and she didn't actually submit willingly because the only reason a girl is going to go up against her prophet her boss, and the person who has her house over her head is somebody who is uncomfortable and doesn't want to and is trying to get help. And if this is Fanny Alger, then we already have some serious issues. And that is you have a little girl who is trying to get help and she's telling people and nobody helped her. Nobody got her back to her parents. And that means the entire community is already so enthralled by Joseph that they are allowing a little girl to be violated after she is begging for help. At the same time, Joseph is apparently telling Levi that, who's saying, you know, if it is true, why don't you just put it out there as scripture? And his response is, Brother Levi, if I should make known 
to my brethren what God has made known to me, they'll murder me, is what he's saying. Around this time, between 1833 and 1837, there is one Ezra Bond and Mary Bond, their siblings, their parents, Ira and his wife, tell them repeatedly throughout their life as a fact that Smith practiced polygamy in Kirtland and that he followed a girl into a privy and committed fornication with her. So that's important. Take note of the fact that he's not having sex with them as wives. Some of these girls are not even considered polygamous. Take into account Emma's statement to Apostle McLellan that she knew her husband was a polygamist and that he was guilty of adultery. She's naming two things, that yes, he later did the polygamy scheme, but he was also an adulterer. So these are brainwashed Mormons who are saying that he's a polygamist, but he's also having affairs with a girl. So we have another underage girl who he's following into an outhouse, and he's having sex with her in that outhouse. Around this same time, we have numerous accounts that Joseph was sleeping with prostitutes at a house of ill fame called the Boston House. And he is said by another person later that claimed that I believe that this is where the revelation so-called of celestial marriage was born. We know from Sidney Rigdon's biographer that he said that Joseph Smith tried to or was sexual with Sidney Rigdon's teenage daughters, two daughters in Kirtland. So we have an account here by J.E. Stevenson, who lived in the area at the time, and he says that a while before the exodus of the Mormon church from Kirtland to Missouri, an occurrence was said to have taken place that for a while threatened to cause a rupture between Rigdon and Smith, and whether the affair was forgiven by Rigdon is quite doubtful. Joseph had received a revelation that he was to lie with a virgin and raise up a second Jesus, and to this send he arranged with a woman who resided in what was then called the Boston House to entice one of the Rigdon's daughters into her house for the night. And when this was done, the woman was to notify the prophet. The plan proved successful. The girl was caged and Smith notified. She first discovered him standing in the bedroom door. She asked him why he was there. He replied, he had received a revelation from the Lord of the import stated, and she was the virgin indicated. She asked him if he was sure the revelation was from the Lord, saying it would be a fearful thing if there should be a mistake. He told her there could be no mistake possible. Assured by her coolness, he advanced into the room, leaving the door way clear. She suddenly sprang over the footboard, darted through the door, and was out of his reach in an instant, exclaiming as she went, The Lord will be disappointed this time. She reported the occurrence at once to her father, who waited upon the prophet and informed him if he ever did attempt again to repeat this deception on a daughter of his, he would shoot him as he would a dog. This affair was much discussed at the time and was thought by many to have been one of the causes of the disaffection that afterward existed between the two great Mormon leaders. I think the public were of the opinion that Rigdon never adopted the views of Smith on the spiritual wife question. So notice that Rigdon doesn't say ever again on anyone. He just says on a daughter of mine. This may have been true that he slept with one of them or tried to because the wedding of the oldest daughter, she's said to be 14 years old. Her birth date shows she's a little older, but she would have been a young teenager and her parents suddenly marry her off. Nancy, however, their next daughter, they don't make her get married until she's 24 years old. And I think it would explain why they have this falling out. They've had some tension here and there, but it gets really bad. And he isn't someone who has spiritual wives in Nauvoo. We have accounts of others 
here's one saying that at the time these women are doing these you know speaking in tongues things they're falling onto people's laps they have men sometimes when they fall on the floor trying to pick up their skirts and we've got an account about a leading mormon who left and told them that any man who left because of the things that were going on would be put out of the way and that that mormon much feared his wife would be taken that he was a leader of the church so he's probably someone like mcmullen Cowdery or the others who left. They say that Rockwell and Old Balsley were people who were mainly the men killing people that would talk. But we also have an LDS leader who spoke at one point openly that he didn't want a narrow contracted kingdom in heaven. He wanted to preside over a big kingdom and he wanted more angels than he could raise from one woman. At the same time that Miss Hill is sleeping with Joseph, we've got Emma who's having a baby and Joseph panics because she's under a hard labor he refuses to use doctors by the way meanwhile he keeps dr williams close but he refuses to use doctors and there's accounts of other people dying because of that so we know that in 1828 they had a deformed stillborn baby alvin we know in 1831 he had two twins that were dead when they were born we know that joseph iii was born in november of 1832 and he only survived because joseph panicked and quietly brought a doctor named dr card to help her deliver the baby after she had struggled with a long labor we have an account from someone saying that after he delivered the baby he met um, a member on the road and he was laughing because he was saying that joseph you know has recently preached a revelation not to employ doctors but look at what he's done he made me come and the first baby they've had that's healthy is the one i delivered so we know that he then doesn't have another baby with Emma for four years. This baby is Friedrich. He's born in 1836 and he dies in 1862. Then we know that he has another in 1838, which is June 2nd, 1838. He has another child, Alexander, and that that child does live and he lives until he's older. Then we know that they have Don Carlos Smith in 1840 and he dies within a year. He has Thomas Smith who dies the very day he's born in 1842 in February and then he has his last son and then his last son is born after he's dead in November 17th of 1844. The reason I'm bringing this up is because Joseph's father likes to give Emma blessings and kind of implies in Kirtland that she has a crappy body and your babies are dying because of that. However, besides some other pregnancy issues like preeclampsia which is unlikely seeing as preeclampsia the more babies you have it gets worse and with emma's she ends up having dead babies at first and then some of these babies are healthy so the other options for stillborns people who get stds a lot of stds will cause a stillborn baby and we know that william smith was accused by many people of having killed his first wife who died in nauvoo he did not go to her funeral with an STD that he gave her. So apparently God wanted her to die of an STD because, you know, God's the one who said that you should sleep around. The other cause besides STDs that cause high amounts of stillborn babies is we have some research recently that says that women have an increase of having stillbirths by 40% if they are under mass stress. The England National Institute of Health says that they have looked into women who had stillborns and that 83% of those had reported at least one stressful, extremely stressful situation in the time that they were pregnant or right before that. 75% reported that 
And then 83% reported they had multiple encounters that caused high stress. Emma's baby. Alvin was said to be deformed. It is known that certain STDs do cause deformed babies to be born and stillborn. So there you go with Alvin. It wasn't a curse from God. It was most likely an STD. And Alvin was born June 15th, 1828. Right about the time that Joseph is obsessing in his Book of Mormon and starting to later in his Doctrine and Covenants talk about not having affairs and all that crap. So then we have April 1831. The twins are born. Well, at this point, Smith's already got tons of accusations and people are saying that Kirtland is a place where wives are swapped and everything's going on like that. We know that Joseph III is saved by a doctor in 1832. We know that in June of 1836, she delivers a healthy baby. But it's interesting because if you go through the history of the church, Joseph is fleeing a lot because he's in a lot of debt. He has a lot of debt and he's trying to gain money at this point. So he would have been gone off and on. That baby's healthy. We have June 2nd, 1838. The Alexander Hale Smith is born healthy. Well, Joseph had fled and abandoned her by late summer of 1837 or fall of 1837. And then she was alone. (laughs) For some time. So there's that. And he's also running around in 1838 being really violent and saying things that he should not, which causes a war later. Then we have Don Carlos, who's born and dies. He's born in June of 1840. Well, that's after Joseph Smith. He's supposed to be transferred to have a trial, but he escapes because he bribes the guard and he's back home with her the whole time. Then we have Thomas Smith, February 1842. He dies stillborn. And again, Joseph is with her most of the time. Does he leave? Yeah, he leaves. He's having affairs with everybody at this point. But this is also when his uptick really increases in 1841 and 42. He is adding to the harem like crazy. And then the last baby who lives and is born isn't born until 1844. And that's probably because the stressor in the situation and the STD spreader is dead. He dies in June of 1844, and his wife has a healthy pregnancy after that. So after this period where he's in trouble with numerous people, there's another accusation, and I'm going to say this is not Fanny Algar once again, because when he would say I have a revelation, he didn't mean always a written one. In Kirtland period, he was constantly being chastised, even by the other leaders, saying, every time someone asks you a question, don't answer with thus saith the Lord. Because sometimes they're just asking you like normal stuff. Joseph later admitted to a reporter in Nauvoo, he claims he has revelations for everything, but they're not all written down. Most never got printed. And so he says, I have a revelation about anything. Oh, I had a revelation that your son is going to live and he's going to go on a mission. It means he just thinks about it and he says it. So we know that Alfred Holbrook said that the doctrine of polygamy first appeared in Kirtland. He says that there was a revelation of Joe Smith with reference to the daughter of one of the old inhabitants of Kirtland who was sealed to Joe as a spiritual wife. So we have another account because Fanny was not an old inhabitant. She had been born in Massachusetts. And so we have somebody who was born in and raised around Kirtland for a long time and considered one of the first inhabitants of Kirtland area. And again, Fanny's parents didn't live in Kirtland, who he provided a document for or claimed that God gave him one and she was sealed to Joe as a spiritual wife. So at the same time that Joseph Smith is claiming, I can raise the dead, I can heal people. Also, I'm about to openly claim in a couple of years that God is giving me a revelation that says I have to have a harem because it's righteous and I get to sleep with virgins and multiply the earth with them. 
And if my wife doesn't aid me, then I will destroy her, saith the Lord, a.k.a. Joseph. The same time he's claiming that crap, he cannot even save his own children. Out of nine of his children, four were born and died on the same day. One died within a year, so congrats, you've got four living children. Out of those four children who lived to adulthood, one only lived until his 20s, and another died after he went insane and was put in an asylum. So congratulations, you are definitely special and chosen of the Lord, and he clearly cared to watch over you and your family and give you healing powers and everything else. Okay, I'm going to wrap this episode up. That's 31 allegations so far, and then we'll continue with the others. <laughs>